ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to The Minefield. I'm going to begin with a confession. Waleed Ali is my name, by the way. Scott Stevens is my co-host. He has no idea what my confession is going to be. I don't. This is one of those rare times where I think this is a show we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> and so what's going to happen today is oh, Scott's going to, by making manifest the glorious idea he has in his head, he's going to win me over. That's what I think is going to happen <laughs> today. Are you ready for that task, Scott? Is that No. Why? No. I you'd be up for that. Well, I mean, under ordinary circumstances, I would. But I just really, we have not talked about what it is we're talking about today at all outside No, of I think we show. had a very brief conversation, but I'm open to being swayed here. So for those of you who, uh, who don't know, this is, I suppose, the next instalment in the Minefield Not Quite a Book Club thing, mm. um, whose name is still indeterminate. Mm. Uh, but... It's odd for two reasons. One is it sort of just happened without a, a lot of build-up. Normally we give you a whole lot of warning and we say go away and watch this and or read this or whatever and we remind you every week. This one just kind of happened yeah. because of circumstances outside of the studio. But we did also give people some warning. We've given yeah, yeah, a little weeks. bit. Yeah. But also I think it violates a rule of the book club, which was not a rule that anyone articulated until right now, <laughs> which is do we do revisits? Hmm. I don't know that we do revisits. Mm. But anyway, we are today uh, because we're looking at the fourth and final series of Succession. You'll recall the very first Not Quite a Book Club we did, I think, wasn't it? Was Succession series one to three. That's right. And that's why I like to think of this one as Not Quite a Book Club 1B. (laughs) (laughs) Which, if anybody has watched Succession, hopefully you get the joke. There's this wonderful moment of, of soft passive-aggressive bargaining that's taking place between Roman Roy and Nan Pierce, the matriarch of the Pierce Media Group. And she's trying to sway the Roys to come to a particular number without telling them what that number is. And she says, all these people are throwing numbers at me, seven, eight, nine, who knows what comes next? And Roman says, hmm, nine, what comes after nine? Is it nine B? (laughs) Quite a wonderful moment. That's very good. Well, one B. One very, B. Very subtle joke by you. Yeah. Um, and then I have to explain it, which just says it's probably so subtle that it drowned in its own It subtlety. doesn't make it less brilliant, Scott. Yeah, well. Okay. So my, I had two reasons that I, I wasn't sold on this. One is sure. I, don't know, I don't know about the repeat thing or the revisit thing. Mm-hmm. But secondly, I just wasn't sure. I, I love the season, right? So this isn't a criticism of succession. But sure. I just wasn't sure that it was giving us something to explore that was really any significantly different from what we'd already explored. Mm. In fact, one of the things I think I've found, the most common criticism of succession I've heard and the only one that I think has something to it is that actually it's a show that goes nowhere because it's the same show over and over and over again. That the characters don't really ever develop or change. No one really gets anywhere. Um, It's so brilliantly written that you... Uh, in every instance led to believe it might be different this time, but it never actually is. Mm. Was it Jesse Armstrong who was the show's, what's his role, creator? He's the, Uh, I mean, he's what's technically known as the showrunner. So he's the person who essentially sits astride the writer's room um, and he sets the creative direction of the show. Right. And he's the one who's on record as saying he doesn't really believe that people can change. Mm, That's right. Therefore, we shouldn't expect that the characters can. So in other words, nothing really ever happens in this show. Mm Uh, the initial thing is set up and then it's a puzzle that can never be solved and we just come along for the ride as everyone just spins their wheels. That's 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 the basic criticism. I'm not sure that necessarily has to be a criticism. I think that could be just an observation that's either neutral or perhaps even positive about the show. But I do think it's a true enough observation about the show. And so I just wasn't sure what season four was going to give us. But here, Scott, is where you interpose the things that you've seen in season four that are just completely different and blow out of the water every observation we made last time. Good heavens. Uh, Not quite. It's worth saying that the last time that we discussed the show, we did make a promise of sorts at the end. Uh, And to my mind, this conversation is a fulfillment of that promise. Much the same way as Jesse Armstrong said that the very title of the series, Succession, makes a promise to the audience that at some point, at some moment, 
the narrative shifts from retaining the crown to obtaining the crown. Uh, so in much the same way, we asked at the end of the last conversation, in fact, you asked our guest, is succession nihilistic? Is it a nihilistic program? A program, in other words, mm. or does it depict a world in which nothing matters, in which everything to, again, quote a character that we're going to come to a little bit later, everything essentially is BS. Nothing mm. matters or nothing matters apart from power. Nothing matters apart from influence and everything, everything is sacrificable on the altar of power and influence. So that was the question that you posed to our guest right. last time. So you want to answer that today? Well, and and in fact, her answer to you was, we won't know until season four. Mm. Uh, so we've gotten to the end of season four, and I think season four has left us with an unambiguous, unequivocal answer, which is yes. This show yep, is nihilistic. Fundamentally, nothing matters. The idea of progress, moral perfection, or even just moral advance in the characters is virtually impossible. We've seen them spinning around in circles, more or less. Every time there is some kind of moment of familial tenderness or kindness, every time the, the children, and I think it's probably appropriate, even though these are grown adults, the three central children, Kendall, Siobhan, and Roman, even though they are adults, they really are children. And the show reminds us at the beginning of every episode with this series of interspersed images from New York City and then home movies, effectively, depicting mm. uh, these children at play, uh, these children trying to achieve the attention of their father and looking forlornly when he walks away. We're reminded, I think, every single week that this is a patriarchal world in which a single patriarch stands astride the entire world. I think one of the things we do have to revisit today is Logan Roy's picture of the world. It's a picture of the world that the children at various stages have tried to rebel against, have tried to say that this is not necessarily the case. The world doesn't have to be like this. Success doesn't have to look like uh, what the patriarch Logan has made it look like. And yet I think we've found ourselves at the end of season four, ultimately having to admit that within the imaginative confines of this universe, the world that has been depicted by Logan Roy himself is the world within which these children operate. And the only way in which you can succeed is to succeed according to the terms, the underlying law of that world, which means ultimately there is no possibility of human success within the universe of right. so succession. Right. So the final lesson is that Logan's right. And that Logan was right all along. Not so much right, but there is... Well, an... I think he was right. I mean, he was right in respect of a, a few things, right? He, his judgment of his children was correct. Yes, that's right. His insistence that he succeeds because he actually knows the world. He actually says then... at, at multiple points, if I didn't understand something, the idea well, of understanding in the show is really interesting. It's actually a very ancient idea. I mean, I, I can see it in Hebrew philosophy. I can see it in Greek philosophy. The idea of, of understanding the world as seen past the appearance of things and understanding the underlying law that makes the entire thing work. Logan says repeatedly, yeah. if I didn't understand something about the world, I wouldn't turn a buck. In other words, his wealth is proof positive of his ability to understand something about the hearts of human beings. Right. And he's right. So can I, can I take you back? I, I have a mud map for the show. Uh, and I'm not sure it entirely... Sorry, for succession or for this show? Uh, for succession. It may well it right. may well guide some of what we're talking about today. I don't know. Um, I think that for the most part, the first half of season one and most of season three are probably the show's critical failures. I just don't think the show is as good as it should be in the first half of season one and most of season three. Uh, the second half of season one, which then creates the problem, namely the acquisition of the company by a hostile kind of takeover bit, a bear hug, which then preoccupies most of season two, leading to the culmination of uh, member Kendall effectively trying a forceful, uh, a forceful taking of his father's place by implicating him in a corporate scandal. Which I think is probably the show's high point. I think it is probably the high point, but I don't think the execution after that high point, uh, Kendall's attempt to kind of make himself what he refers to as a fearless freedom fighter over and against yeah. his father's corruption, that never quite works. And not only does it not work, but then Logan's exposure of his son's hypocrisy towards the end of season three, where Kendall says he wants to get out. He wants to leave. Can he just mm. be bought out? 
uh, I'm better than you. You're corrupt. You succeed because you're corrupt and the world is corrupt as well. And then Logan in this sort of famous scene over a plate of mozzarella cheese uh, or a mozzarella cheese salad uh, effectively says to him, you know, I've been there to clean up your mess. I've been there to clean you every time you've covered yourself in excrement. And I'm the bad person. So the hypocrisy that runs through the show, I think, is fairly unrelenting. But where the show is at its best, I think, simply imaginative, narratively speaking, is when the company is trying to worm its way out of a hostile takeover bid or trying to uh, trying to deal fairly solidly with the politics, not so much of politics, but the politics of corporate takeover. And so there, I think, there is a kind of familial pairing of Logan being sick in the first half of season one and most of season three, uh, him not quite being himself and therefore his children trying to get rid of him on more or less compassionate grounds. He's just not up to the task. And then I think there's a pairing of season two and season four where Waystar Royco, the company that's sort of, that's the kingdom, and I think it's proper to call it the kingdom, isn't it? The kingdom of the show is being taken over or there's the attempt to take it over by hostile forces. Um, and I think it's it's that pairing along with the constant depiction of the Waystar Royco company as a kingdom, as an empire that needs to be defended, and of the person who sits atop that as the king, the queen, the monarch, effectively the tyrant. I mean, this is the theme I think that runs consistently through all four seasons. The person who sits atop is the tyrant, is the despot, is the king. And what emerges, I think, over the course of the show is that not only is the kingdom crumbling, I think that's one of the really interesting, I don't know how you feel about this, Waleed, but Waystar Royco is an empire, but it's a crumbling empire. It's something that comes really quite clearly uh, into focus at the very, very end of the very last episode. The technology isn't working well. The buildings aren't overly nice. The shows are held together by tape and declining talent. The monarch at the head of it uh, is himself failing, and his children have undergone such a process of imaginative and moral and emotional abuse and decline that any crown that they inherit is itself a poison crown, and the kingdom that they set to inherit is itself accursed, a declining kingdom. Yeah, I suppose that's true because the person who ends up taking it over represents the new empire, right? Mm, Which is the empire of technologically updated content. Um, And I use that word content advisedly because that is the word of the age of that new empire. And the very fact that Lucas Madsen, who's this Swedish invader, let's put it that way, the head of a a company called Gojo, which is a a catch-all everything app, he effectively wants to turn the company into what he calls spare parts. For him, he's a content agnostic. Anything works as long as it attracts views. Which is kind of Logan's world. I mean, you could argue that Logan was ideologically motivated and he has certain political proclivities, and that's true. But this is where I think his observation that he understands the world and otherwise wouldn't turn a buck really comes into its own, right? It's one thing to attribute this sort of wacky ideology to him or perhaps not wacky ideology to him, but the evidence of the truth of his proposition is that it works. Mm. But he has has names for that, Waleed. It's really interesting. There's a litany of three words. He says, a bit of spice... A bit of fun, a bit of truth. That's his recipe for success. Hmm. Do you think he's wrong? I don't think he's wrong. You're right. So this is where I think I get the crumbling empire bit. I get the hostile takeover. But in a way, it's not that hostile because it's what Logan wants. This is Logan's deal, right? Mm, That's right. In its initial conception. But why is it what he wants, Waleed? I think this actually gets us precisely to the point. Why does he want this deal with Lucas Madsen? Well, I can think of two reasons. Yep. One is he'd rather Matson than any of his children. That's right. But why? Well, because they're incompetent and because I think he sees Matson as the next generation him. Yeah. He's a serious person. Right. That's what Logan repeatedly says. Yeah. In the way that Logan's a serious person, right? Yes, and that's right. Logan's children are deeply unserious and their unseriousness is manifest to us through the show over and over and over again. And it is really only, I actually think in a way, the climactic scene is the one where Roman just says it. Like he just identifies that they're all just BS. Yes, that's right. They're nothing, right? 
They are only something because of their attachment to this thing that is something and to their father who was someone. The other, it actually goes oh. deeper than that. Sorry, can, can I just read you briefly what Roman says at the very end yeah. of the very last episode? So this is after he and his older brother have had this. I mean, really, it's an adolescent fight. I mean, it's brutal and it's horrible. And it's reminiscent of a certain conflict that happens in King Lear uh, involving the gouging of somebody's eyes out. But this is what Roman says. It's all referring to the empire itself. It's all bits of glue and broken shows. It's phony news. It's nothing. It's effing nothing. We are BS. We are BS. It's all just BS. And what's interesting about that is that uh, the previous, um, not the previous episode, uh, episode eight in season 10, where he's referring to, this is the America Decides uh, episode, where he says, you know, what we did tonight in sort of swaying a particular election or buying into a particular narrative, he says, what we've done tonight is we've made a good evening of television. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. And earlier part in the episode, he says, dad's dead. Nothing matters. And he uses a particularly crass sexual image describing the United States as a society that is just lying there passively waiting to be done over. Yeah. So in the end, though, I think Logan probably knows that there's a certain truth to what Roman's saying. And therefore he wins because he cashes out at exactly the right time to exactly the right person in his eyes. That is the person who's most like him. And he doesn't allow his kingdom to suffer the ignominy of being passed on to his incompetent children. Mm, That's right. Right? Yep. Okay. I just don't know how you get from that to any conclusion other than Logan's right. You, You can call that nihilistic if you like. And I suspect it is because I suspect the worldview of the show and certainly of the audience is such that Logan's a terrible person and that Logan's world is a terrible world, the world that he's created and also the world that he inhabits. These are terrible worlds. And would that the world were different and that it is people like Logan who are destroying the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But underneath all that, Perhaps this is critique of the world as much as it is anything else. Underneath all that, Logan's right about the world. Mm. His decisions are ultimately correct at every turn. Can you think of one example where Logan was wrong? Well, there's there's succeeding in terms of the logic of the world that's constructed by the show. But I think Mm. here's here's where it's different, Waleed. To my mind, the show revolves around two twin poles, two themes – And if you don't understand these twin themes, then you just don't understand the show. Uh, One is tyranny. It seems to me overt that Logan Roy is modeled after a Shakespearean tyrant. Uh, Early on, people associated him with... Bashar al-Assad, right? Remember that reference earlier on? It's hilarious. Where Tom Wamsgan's facing a big empty wall of his house. This is a beginning of season two, where he says to his wife, Shiv, he says, you know, is it gauche? Is it terribly unseemly that I want to fill this wall with a picture of us? Would that be too, would that be too Saddam? <laughs> would that be too Asadi? So, I yeah. mean, the way that success... And then there's Shiv's phone, right, where when her dad calls a picture of Saddam. It's Saddam. That's exactly right. Gets up. So, yeah, so that's, the references are there. So, yes, I, I see the tyranny part of it. Um, but it's not just that. I mean, people early on, I think, associated Logan with Lear, kind of teetering on madness and being capricious in the way that he's handing out the trinkets of his kingdom. But I really think the proper point of comparison within the Shakespeare canon is Julius Caesar and Richard III, both of whom are uh, lawless, both of whom are arrogant, narcissistic, are cruel, uh, view the world in terms of winners and losers, and whose unassailability uh, is bound up in their ability to draw people in who will be guaranteed or promised success along their same terms. In other words, the very, uh, the very people who prop up Richard III will be the people who benefit from Richard III's reign. I think we see precisely the same thing. The problem with the children, and so this is what's interesting to me, is you've got the tyrant, you've got the despot, and he holds out a world in which the only way to seize that crown in order to be able to become a a logical or a worthy heir, you have to go through risk. You have to go through adversity. You have to go through pain and a degree of suffering. 
And yet at the very moments when he holds the possibility of going through that pain or that adversity out to his children, the children continually fall back on either board game playing. At one point, Marsha, at the end of season one, for instance, uh, Logan's most recent wife, uh, says to Shiv, he created a playground for you and you think it's the entire world. The children take ambition, but they see it through the lens of a kind of board game, which involves cheating and backstabbing and only one person can win and so on. So the children, the way that they've been brought up, the emotional stuntedness of their life with their father means that they cannot, by definition, they cannot be the worthy heirs of this kingdom. And yet each one of them, in order to try to uh, gain their fealty, their loyalty, the father variously holds, holds out the promise that you will be next. You're my favorite. You're the one who will, be, who will succeed here where the others have failed. So I think on the one hand, there's that pole of tyranny, which is that the tyrant alone can rule. There's only one man in the universe of succession. Uh, and the children are successively so stunted, so reduced in their capacity to live properly within the world. They have a promise held out that can never, ever, ever be theirs, which means that within the universe of succession, any decision that the children take will fail. They can never succeed within the universe of succession, within that imaginative world, which brings me to the other pole. If the one is tyranny, then the other is tragedy. And that's that anything that they do is bound to fail. But that for me, Willie, if I can just make this one last point, then I want to bring in our guest. And by the way, sorry, before I get to the tragedy, in the, the second to last episode, episode nine of the final season, which is devoted to Logan's funeral, there are dueling eulogies, uh, one given by Logan's brother, Ewan, and the other by Logan's son, Kendall. And I think it's interesting. Well, eventually. Eventually. Well, eventually. But I think what's so interesting about that is that these are the two ways that are held up to the audience of was Logan really successful within this world? What is his legacy? And it's so fascinating to me. You have Ewan, the brother, saying, yes, he gave away a few millions of his billions, but he was not a generous man. He was mean mm. and he made a mean estimation of the world. And he fed a certain meagerness in men. Perhaps he had to because he had a meagerness about him. Think- After telling a story, by the way, that I think almost sympathetically explained the way Logan is. That's right. And That's I, right. I think it was interesting that he, he introduced that, Logan, you know, taking on blame for the death for of death. his sister. Mm. But then he pivots immediately away from that and then just assassinates his character. Um, but it's interesting, right? So you talk about those, those dueling eulogies. The eulogy that doesn't get given is Romans, mm. which probably would have been the most full-throated defense or celebration of the character of Logan. It would have been fawning. It would have been celebratory, yep. but it also would have been self-serving in the sense of... Of course. Everyone's self Okay. But that would have been the most full-throated defense, right? The most fully articulated celebration of Logan Roy as a great man, mm. but it's never given, partly because of Roman's own incapacity. Um, well, overwhelmingly because of that. Kendall can't give it because in the end he doesn't believe it. And Shiv doesn't even really try in the end. So while you talk about these two dueling eulogies, actually they're not dueling. It's a wipeout. It's very clear. That's not true. I think it's totally true because the eulogies given by the children are a joke. No, I disagree. So, So Kendall says, my father was a brute. How can he say anything other after what else he said about his father in public? Kendall says he had a terrible force about him, a fierce ambition that could push you to the side. But it was only that human thing, the will to be, the will to be seen, the will to do. And now he says people might want to tend and prune the memory of him and denigrate that force, that magnificent, awful force of him. But my God, I hope it's in me. That, I think, is Kendall's recognition that after four seasons of saying, I can do you, Logan, but I can do you better because I'm better than you. I'm more moral than you. Mm. Kendall is trying at this point to say that the only way of being, of doing in this world is by having that same force that wipes people away. And it's fascinating to me that most of that episode is Kendall then spent 
wiping away the significant women or vulnerable persons in his life, modeling in many respects his father's own force in the world. And you think that eulogy is a victory? I don't think it's a dueling eulogy contest. I don't think it's a victory. I think it is a stark contrast to you. But it's it's clearly designed to be abhorrent. No, No one walks away from that inspired by or wanting to celebrate the person in the casket. This is one of the things I thought was interesting about that moment was when a figure as large as Logan is reduced to death, Mm. no one could find anything to say about him that is what you would want said at your funeral. Yeah, it's true. Right? Because... You did okay, Dad. You did okay. That was shit remarks. So this is the thing, right? I, I think there is a subtext to that whole episode, which is basically saying all of the success that Logan Roy may have accumulated throughout his life doesn't mean anything when you're dead. Mm. There is actually nothing about the meaning of his life that could carry over past the event of death. Now, that might be the only non-nihilistic element to this whole show, but there's no doubt in my mind, if you want to construct these eulogies as a rap battle, there's no doubt who wins it. I I just can't see how there's any doubt about that. Well, I think... The the other observation I want to make, though, by the way, I mean, you mentioned Richard III and Julius Caesar... Apologies for keeping coming back to this point. Both of those figures, if I understand correctly, wind up dead. Yes, that's right. right. Um, Logan winds up dead, but not defeated. They they wind up defeated, mm-hmm. right? Julius Caesar, etu brute, mm-hmm. and Richard III is killed on Bosworth Field, mm, that's right? right? And Henry VII becomes... Okay, so this differs from that in that whatever Shakespearean view of the world exists in those plays, and, you know, you or listeners can fill that in in their own minds. It's not nearly as triumphant a world for the protagonist. No, that's right. Right. So Logan wins. And I think if you want to argue this is a nihilistic world or a nihilistic show, then Logan winning, I think, has to be the central element of it because Logan's a nihilistic character and he's a nihilistic character as evidenced by the eulogies. That's, yeah. that's the point that makes. I understand. Is that... But where I think I subtly or slightly disagree is Ewan's point, his perspective, is that it's not so much that Logan understood the world, but rather that his meagerness resonated with a meagerness in the world. And so he catered to that which is most base, that which is stingiest. And so at a crucial point, Ewan then says, at a certain point, he gave up struggling against that meagerness. Whereas for Kendall, the world is this vital, fertile field. And Logan's force of vitality was to bring a kind of active creation out of the fertility that's there. He's at home in the world because everything in the world is a kind of resource that he can maximize. So the, the Julian ideas, I think, of meagerness versus fecundity, of, of reduction versus creation, I think that's where it becomes truly, truly interesting, which means that, I mean, where we're going to have to go with this conversation is what this means for the only really viable couple within the world of succession, namely Tom Wamsgan and Shiv Roy. I feel like Viable is doing a lot of work. It's doing a lot of work. Our guest is Ted Nanicelli. He's Associate Professor of Film and Television Studies at the University of Queensland. Ted, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks for having me. So before we go on to the other element, I think, of all this, we've talked about tyranny. We haven't talked a lot about tragedy. How do you want to respond to what we've discussed so far? All right. Well, as a placeholder, the other place I'd like to go is comedy, because I think we haven't talked about that at all yet, and I think it's really important. I mean, I suppose if I were to briefly weigh in on on the eulogies, I mean, I think the show itself is not nihilistic, and I think one of the reasons it's not is because we have Ewan, and he serves as a counterpoint to the other characters. I think the system in which the Roy family is operating is a kind of nihilistic system. And I think that, I I guess I agree with you about Kendall's eulogy in the sense that I think it is not a criticism of of Logan. I think it is, uh, as you said, Scott, Kendall's acknowledgement that actually to be successful in this corporate world, 
the super rich, one has to become completely amoral and be kind, a kind of uh, Nietzschean ubermensch or mm. something, right? And when he says, I hope it's in me, I think this is, as you say, I mean, the rest of the episode, we see him finally kind of... Can I just point out, though? Yep. The previous episode, so America decides about yes. the election, yes. Kendall says to Siobhan, maybe the poison drips through. Yes. Talking about his father's poison, yes. infiltrating his own life. So we go from maybe the poison drips through to, my God, I hope it's in me. Yes. I think they're the same point, though. That's why I just can't... Anyway, sorry, I'm interrupting. Ted, go That's on. okay. I mean, the only other thing I was going to say about that is that I actually think it's a pitch. It's a pitch to all of the people in the church who have some influence in uh, swaying the board members about how they're going to vote later in the season. And I think not only is he affirming Logan's worldview, but I think he's also trying to convince um, the board and people who might influence the board that he is actually now ready to embrace the, the, the kind of worldview that Logan had. Which is why it fails as a eulogy. Uh, yes. Because well, it's, it, it's yeah. ultimately not a eulogy. I think the audience is invited into seeing it as a failure. There's no moment where it really gets rousing. The closest it possibly gets is he tries to connect Logan's nature to the thing that the United States is built on. So, you know, the greatness of our country is kind of embodied in the greatness of this man. There's, that sort of idea is there. The money, the idea. corpuscules of life gushing around yeah. this nation. It's extraordinary, the, Mark. Right, all this sort of stuff. But it's a joke, right? At no point... If you wanted to write a eulogy that would sell those ideas, that's not the eulogy you would write. I don't mean Kendall. I mean as a writer of the show, right? If you, if you wanted to be sympathetic in some way to those ideas or you wanted to that to be the worldview that the audience takes on. Yes, yes. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, it's, I think the writer's perspective is critical of those ideas. Yes. No, That's I th right. I think you're absolutely right about that, Walid. I mean, and they're on Ewan's side. But don't forget, Ewan remains in the end this peripheral, ultimately impotent character. That's right. Who... Well, no, I guess he votes against Logan's vision, but that would have been a vision that would have delivered it to the guy who was giving the dueling eulogy. <laughs> so what, what's the sum total of Ewan's impact on the world? Well, I mean, I think it represents a choice. I think, again, it's not just the world, but I think you're right, Ewan has no ability to shape this kind of uh, super capitalist dystopia in which the Roy family is, is operating. But I think what he represents is this ability to, I, I suppose, reject that and try to create something of, of actual value and to hold on to value. And, and none of the other children are able to do that. Um, but does Ewan actually achieve that? Because like, there's something vaguely ridiculous about Ewan as well. Like, mm -hmm. you know, that episode in, is it season three, where he introduces cousin Greg, who's, by the way, a character that never receives enough attention on this show. But anyway, um, he introduces cousin Greg to his lawyer, who's talking about revealing the structural contradictions of <laughs> capitalism as <laughs> reified. Right, right, right. Like, this is a ridiculous character. Yes. Um, <laughs> Ewan's on the sort of quasi-intellectual slash radical academic side of things, but ultimately what? Well, I don't know. It's a good point, Wally. I mean, I, I had forgotten about that scene. But yeah, I suppose my take is simply that, you know, this show I don't think presents the Roy universe as the sum total of, of the universe. I think, you know, it is certainly uh, a nihilistic world and certainly kind of a dystopia, but I think it is um, not a comment on the ability of people outside of it to, I guess, resist it or reject it. And I think part of the reason I say that is that's where the comedy comes in, right? I mean, I think the moments where um, we are invited to see the absurdity of these characters um, and to see them as being the, the proper objects of satire, um, I think suggests that even though, you know, or despite their, the, the power that they wield within their world, it is a kind of ridiculous and fundamentally valueless world in any kind of meaningful sense of value. This is a really interesting mm. point, Ted. I mean, a really interesting point, in fact, because 
I mean, a comedy strikes me as on one level a kind of leftover from the original vision of the series from the first half of the first season. It was obviously going to be a bit more spoof-like, a bit more satirical. And then you have the preposterous scenes, for instance, of, you know, wagon loads of gourmet food being dumped in the bins and, and pizza being brought in its place. The comedy, the, the moments where the audience is, is invited to look upon the ridiculousness of what's transpiring. Really? This is what you're fighting over? And these are the people who are fighting over it? To my mind, that bleeds very, very quickly into what we, I think we can simply call the humanity of the show. So to my mind, you, no one I know would describe it as comedy. But the moment when Logan Roy in fact dies... He dies on a toilet. He dies because, according to someone on the plane, uh, sorry, according to Tom Wamsgans, he didn't wear compression socks so that he could look sexy for his younger, latest girlfriend. He dies on the toilet, and then the distance of the heart compressions, the fact that they take place, the whole scene takes place just out of focus and from a distance on an imperfect, crackly phone line. Everything about that if I can just put it this way, especially in the wake of a pandemic, is human, all too human. And to my mind, the moments of comedy, of absurdity, of just ludicrousness, these are reminders of the finitude, the sheer humanity of the characters. And it's why, and this is, I guess, one of the things that I come to love about the show, even when they are despicable, and there are various moments where every single character on the show is irredeemably despicable, when tragedy and sadness overtakes them, you genuinely, genuinely feel sadness for you them. You don't genuinely feel sad for Logan, I don't think. I disagree. The moment in really? the first season, for instance, where he's being helped up on his bed and his shirt is off and you see the scars on his back, the, his physical corpulence, the fact that he is in many respects deformed, much the same way as Richard III was deformed, that itself, that itself, even his age... Even his moments where he's screaming at the, at, the, at the newsroom at the bottom of ATN, you know, you're pirates. He's raging against death. He's raging against mortality. And at that very moment, you can't help, I think, but feel pity for him. Yeah, but at the moment of death, he's, he doesn't even appear, right? He's this background figure. So what, what if we go back to the previous episode, though? Because I think one of the interesting ways that the, you know, the show has him die is that it gives him a kind of final, relatively sympathetic moment in the episode immediately prior at the end, where he shows up at the nightclub with the children, yeah. and he comes as close as he possibly can to actually apologizing. It's almost remorse. Almost. Yeah. And you get the sense that even though he can't quite do it, this is the best that he can. This is the best he can do. And he's actually trying and this is another moment where, you know, it is ultimately his fault that they can no longer believe him. But you get the sense that they've messed up because they think this is just another play. Um, and yet he's actually trying to tell them it's a good deal. He knows, they don't know, and he is as sorry as he can be. And it's worth just going back on that point, and I'm really glad you brought it up. It's worth going back to the very end of season three where what the kids view as a betrayal, namely uh, him conspiring with his ex-wife to write them out of legal standing whereby they could block the, the deal with Gojo. What they take as a betrayal, he says, Madsen rates you. This is the chance for risk, for adversity, to confront the world head on and make something of your own. And the kids come back whining with, what about us? We'll be so exposed. We'll be so, in other words, they're still in a board game. They're still on the playground. They're still looking for daddy to come and rescue them. So even there, you, there's a degree of sympathy. He's trying to give them a late education in the ways of the world, which is a tacit acknowledgement that he has already so stunted mm. their moral growth, that he's been complicit in the raising of children who have never been able to grow up into adults. Which I think brings us to Tom Wamsgans. Yes, that's right. Who we have? I can't believe we haven't. In a way, the whole the successor. Is, yeah, you're right. He's the winner, except it's a it's a mutilated victory, isn't it? So Ted, Tom wins. He wins only because he's the figure 
who will just be a shell. In other words, because he's insubstantial, he gets to inherit this substantial role that we presume probably won't last for very long once Matson's achieved what he wants to can achieve. I, can, I, can I quote his wife's description of him? Sure. So Siobhan says to the, Lucas Madsen... moment that turns it right. He's very plausible corporate matter. He's a highly interchangeable modular part. And at one point, uh, she essentially says he will ingratiate himself in the most grotesque way yes. to whoever yes. it is yes. that's in the room. That's and, not a quote. But yes. <laughs> and at another um, point then, uh, Lucas Madsen says, I don't need a partner. I need a front man. He says, I'll be under the hood doing the work that I love. I need a pain, pain sponge. sponge. Yes. And yeah. Tom effectively says, I'm your guy. After Lucas Madsen says, essentially, I have designs in sleeping with your wife. And Tom's Which response Which seems is, a test, right? Let's see how you take that. Yeah. And if you can absorb that as a pain, you're a good pain. And sponge. Tom's response and, is effectively, I can do that. Yeah. Um, the irony, well, well the, yeah, the potential irony is that Shiv ends up in a way a loser because she is now really beneath Tom in the whole hierarchy. But... Tom's possibly a pain sponge because he's so experienced at it because of his relationship with Shiv. So Shiv has taught him so much about how to be a pain sponge because of her mistreatment of him that he's now very good at it and that becomes his weapon to assume the the upper hand and, you know, that scene at the end where he extends his hand and Shiv kind of holds it in an act of submission and defeat rather than in any kind of act of affection. So Tom succeeds in that way. Um, but he succeeds because in a way, this I guess builds on the observation you're making about the children needing to be protected and sheltered at every moment. He's the one who was prepared to, to take a risk of sorts, to pick a side. He just decided that the side he would pick would be the one of the guy who's, who always wins, the guy who's always right. So he had to read the play, but it did leave him exposed at various points. And in the end, he wins the mutilated victory that's probably the most he could expect to win. I think that's right, Walid. And I think there's another uh, dimension to this, uh, which we haven't talked about, but which I think is is a theme that runs alongside the, the kind of juvenile nature of the Roy children, which is that even though Tom is just a pain sponge and, and servile, as Shiv describes him at another point, he has some self-knowledge about what his standing is. Um, And it's a kind of self-knowledge that none of the the children really have, save for, I think they they all approach a bit of it at the very end when it's too late. I think actually Connor says um, (laughs) this remarkable thing I've written down. This is also in the nightclub in the episode prior to Logan's death. He says, you're all chasing after dad saying, love me, please love me your needy love sponges, right? The contrast with the pain sponge. And I'm a plant that lives on rocks and lives off insects that die inside me. And Extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And he's comfortable with it. He kind of knows what he is. And this is in the context of of talking about whether Willa is going to leave him or or come back to him after the rehearsal dinner. The the reaction from his siblings is, is shock and a kind of disbelief. And I think that sort of disbelief persists, uh, that that refusal to come to any kind of self-acknowledgement continues until we get the scene with Roman, where he says, you know, this is all BS. And then I think eventually Shiv, when when she reaches her hand out to Tom, um, kind of accepts what the situation is. Mm. I think Kendall... We don't know. That's We get this really kind of interesting and ambiguous ending for him uh, where we don't know exactly whether he's where, where he's going to go. He becomes increasingly a hollow man. Mm-hmm. One of the really interesting things to track, I think, throughout the America Decides episode, so this is season four, episode eight, is that in the face of the overt complicity in electing someone who describes himself as a Caesar-like figure, someone who is brought forth from the sweetness of the virtue of of the Republic. Uh, At every point where people are either uh, totally for it, as Roman is, or actively against it, as Siobhan is, Kendall keeps saying, oh, I don't like this necessarily, or 
I don't know. The complexity of it is really overwhelming to me. So he becomes increasingly passive. And the more that he tries to fill his father's shoes, the more you see the absolute vacuity, the hollowness of it, which actually just incidentally makes his unprepared eulogy all the more impressive in some respects. Because when Kendall does speak in public, he tends to fall back on BS Harvard Business School speech. Uh, his language is the empty language of the MBA. Can I just pick up, though, on the issue of Tom and Shiv? They are, I think, in many respects, the moral heart of the show. Or the central question that the show poses is bound up with them. No dialogue is given to two characters more than Tom and Shiv. The longest single scene over all four seasons, is given to Tom and Shiv at the end of the tailgate party episode where they're out on the balcony. It's an extremely long scene where they inflict the most damage that one human being can inflict upon another. And they're both telling the truth. And they're both telling the truth. And it's awful. It's unremittingly awful. The other source material, we've mentioned the Shakespeare. The other source material, I think, Waleed, and going back and re-watching season four, I was more convinced than ever. The other source material is the 1940s, what's been described as the Hollywood comedies of remarriage, where a couple gets married. They inflict amazing injury upon one another. Here I think of Philadelphia Story or Adam's Rib or uh, His Girl Friday, uh, all from the 1940s. There's 1940 and then uh, two from 1941 from 1949. And in each instance... The characters who are married inflict immense damage upon the other, and their marriage effectively falls apart. It breaks apart. But then such is the process of mutual acknowledgement and self-knowledge. So they acknowledge the pain that they've inflicted upon the other person, and they acknowledge something about their own self-deceit, their own weaknesses, their own complicity in the damage. There's something about that that then brings the couple back together so that even in the face of divorce and in the face of their partner, one of their partners getting married to somebody else, there's a reaffirmation of the conditions of the marriage. And it's so interesting that in that, those last two episodes at various points, Shiv reaches out to Tom. Now that we've said the worst things that one human being can say to another, now that everything is out in the open, now that I've inflicted the maximum amount of pain, is there something that can come from what she describes as this shared nightmare? And at that moment, the opportunity, the invitation for reaffirmation, maybe we can, even if it's just under the umbrella of convenience, maybe we can go on together. At that moment, out of his ambition and out of his bruisedness, Tom says, I just don't know. I don't know. Which then is leads- it ambition? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. His preparedness I, 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 to sacrifice I, I, anything, anything. Yeah, I don't know. I might be alone in this reading, but I think something fundamentally broke for Tom in that relationship towards the end of season three, right? So my reading of that relationship, which I think is idiosyncratic, but my reading of that relationship is Tom loved her. Yes, I think that's right. It wasn't all about trying to climb the corporate ladder, et cetera. He loved her and he kind of always maybe thought or hoped that she loved him and was getting precious little sign of it. And then eventually it became clear where he stood and at that within the relationship. And that's the thing that then allows him to break off from that and pursue his own interests. So when he turns down the possibility of a reproach, I don't know that that's merely like some kind of power play or, you know, pursuing his own ambition and being prepared to sacrifice his marriage. I think he's already given up on, he's not sacrificing anything at that point because he no longer believes in it. I think um, the different interpretations here of Tom's motivations and his psychology are actually crucial to answering that big question about whether the show is nihilistic. Because if you do think that Tom is and Shiv is willing to give this marriage a chance, despite everything, then you have this Cavellian possibility that that you're alluding to, Scott, where in fact they can create something of, of value together. If you think that in fact that that final gesture is one of resignation and a kind of acknowledgement of dual misery and um, inevitability, Mm. right? Then I think it does end on a very nihilistic note. So I think a lot of understanding the show's moral vision actually hinges on 
how you interpret their psychologies and their relationship at the end. I think that's, that's right. I guess the one little caveat that I would raise, and this is a deeper philosophical issue that Willie and I have talked about numerous times that I won't sort of go too far into here. In the end, even if Tom married Shiv out of ambition, he wanted her DNA, as she puts it at one point. And even if she said yes to him out of A, not wanting to hurt his feelings, and B, her being in a position of extreme vulnerability, either the damage from her previous relationship or the illness of her father. Even if that's the case, even if both of their intentions going into the marriage are rotten to the core, at least severely compromised, there is something bizarre despite the successive acknowledgments of pain. At one point towards the end of season two, Tom says, I wonder if the sad that I would feel without you isn't better than the sad that I feel with you. So even with the acknowledgement of the pain, and, and some of that, you know, on their wedding night, she says she effectively wants an open marriage. So, you know, this pain goes deep. Despite that, whatever went into it, the hope that's held out throughout season four is that through the process, hopefully, of acknowledgement and self-knowledge, the acknowledgement of the pain that's inflicted and self-knowledge of who I really am. At various points, they do kind of tell the truth about themselves, that mm. that can yield a morally transformative possibility whereby the marriage in the midst of the marriage becomes possible once again, which is why, again, there's this wonderful moment where Tom says, uh, yes, which would be convenient because you would actually be marrying your husband. So I think this yeah. is this really... You've inf- fallen in love with our scheduling. Is that the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, you know, all right, scheduling convenes. They can be wonderful things, and that may well provide the conditions of possibility. Yeah, within I which just, something like, I just don't buy it. No, I, just don't I don't buy, buy it either, which is why that final moment, the royal turning over of the hand mm. that Tom yep. does, and her limply, with resignation, putting her mm. hand in his, mm. that's the moment of, this is a sham. This is a royal marriage. Maybe. There's, yeah. Let me give you one, one reason to think that it, it might be a little more ambiguous. It mirrors a very famous moment at the end of the 1967, I think, film, The Graduate, where, yes, um, it does. where uh, Dustin Hoffman and, I, sorry, I forget the actress's name, right? But so basically they've both decided that there are things that they don't want, right? And that has kind of brought them together. And so Dustin Hoffman breaks into the wedding, objects to the marriage. They run off. They catch a bus. They get on the bus. They run to the back. They're happy. They hold hands. And then all of a sudden there is this look where they don't know what they've just done. It is not positive. It's not a happy ending. But it's ambiguous enough that you can go either way. You could interpret it either way. Maybe this is going to work. Maybe it's not going to work. And I think because of that illusion, I wouldn't be so quick to say that, you know, there is only resignation Mm -hmm. in that final moment. It's Anne Bancroft, by the way. Ah, thank you. That's the ambiguity that I guess makes a show resonate into the future beyond its beyond its broadcast, isn't it? Ted, thank you. Thank you very much. Ted Nanicelli, Associate Professor of Film and Television Studies at the University of Queensland. Our guests for this week's edition of The Minefield, the Not Quite a Book Club 1B. <laughs> really got to work on this title. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.